Thank you for joining us today. I want to welcome everyone to the October installment of the STS 2021 webinar series. This webinar series runs every month and features presentations and panel discussions on a variety of topics relevant and important to CT surgeons and the world of CT surgery. The topic for this month is patient blood management guidelines, a discussion with the authors. Please note this webinar is being recorded and will be available tomorrow morning on the STS website, STS YouTube channel, and as part of the STS Hot Topics podcast. At this time, I'm pleased to welcome our moderator for this session, Dr. Susan Moffat-Bruce. Dr. Moffat-Bruce is currently the Chief Executive Officer of the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. Dr. Moffat-Bruce, welcome, and let me turn it over to you. Great, thank you very much. And thank you to everybody for joining us this evening. Due to the constantly evolving nature of the medical literature and our specialty as a whole, the Society of Thoracic Surgeons clinical practice guidelines periodically undergo evaluation and updating. A multidisciplinary panel of experts was convened by the STS, which includes members of the Society of Cardiovascular Anesthesiologists, the American Society of Extracorporeal Technology, and the Society of the Advancement of Patient Blood Management to review the latest data on patient blood management and to update the 2011 update to the Society of Thoracic Surgery Guidelines and the Society of Cardiovascular Anesthesia Blood Conservation Clinical Practice Guidelines. The concept of blood, patient blood management informs the recommendations of this work that we will be presenting this evening and truly stresses the importance of an evidence-based practice, multimodal and multidisciplinary approach to not just conserving blood resources, but optimizing patient outcomes, particularly for those who are at high risk for transfusion. The individual recommendations are meant to be inclusive protocol-based methods involving shared decision-making amongst the many stakeholders involved in the care of cardiac surgery patients. As standards for developing clinical practice guidelines have themselves evolved since 2011, the authors, many of whom are here this evening, were tasked with prioritizing topics for systematic review while still aiming for this comprehensive approach from previous versions of this work. These high priority systematic reviews topics make up the bulk of this work that will be presented and ultimately resulted in 23 new or updated recommendations for 2020. Additionally, all previous recommendations not directly addressed by a systematic review were voted on by consensus for inclusion in the 2020 update. Together, these recommendations address the full spectrum of care for patients undergoing cardiac surgery, preoperatively, interoperatively, and postoperatively. In this era of interprofessional and multidisciplinary care, while still being streamlined to include only the most clinically relevant interventions. And so this evening, in the next hour or so, we hope to review the top 10 takeaways from these guidelines and really then focus their application to clinical scenarios and to get feedback and questions for the experts. We have three expert clinicians on this video chat tonight 
we have Dr. Linda Shore Lesserson, Dr. Scott McClure, Dr. Victor Ferraris, and Dr. Pierre Tibby. With that, I will turn it over to Dr. Linda Shore Lesserson for the first of the 10 takeaways. Thank you very much for that introduction, Dr. Moffat Bruce. We're going to begin by sharing with you what we felt were the 10 most critical recommendations of the current guideline. The first key takeaway that I'd like to share reads, the use of synthetic antifibrinolytic agents such as epsilon aminocaproic acid or tranexamic acid reduce blood loss and blood transfusions during cardiac procedures and are indicated for blood conservation. This achieved a class one recommendation with a level of evidence A, which is the highest level of evidence indicating randomized controlled trials or large meta-analyses. There are a number of meta-analyses that have analyzed this question. They date back many decades and are still being published, the Cochrane analysis and multiple others. But most of these include small trials, small randomized trials. So I'd like to bring your attention to this very large trial called the Atticus trial um, by Paul Miles. And this was a study of tranexamic acid and aspirin incidentally, but we will just focus on the tranexamic acid cohort. This study involved 31 sites in seven countries and included 4,631 patients. Randomization was either to placebo or tranexamic acid. Now the initial dose used for tranexamic acid was 100 milligrams per kilo, but after recognition of the fact that there was an increase in seizure, the dose of tranexamic acid was reduced to 50 milligrams per kilo. Otherwise, the groups were demographically similar and the results can be seen on the next slide. So you'll note that there was a statistically significant reduction in reoperations, total blood products used, and also the number of hours of mechanical ventilation in the group that received tranexamic acid. There was an increased incidence of seizures in that group, as I noticed, as I mentioned, but the dose was reduced to 50 milligram per kilo, at which dose there was not an increased incidence of seizures. No other of these outcomes were different. And the next slide is another summary of the total adverse events and transfusion data. You can see that adverse events were not different, and this we worry about because we worry about thrombotic outcomes. So there was no increase in thrombotic composite outcome or myocardial infarction. And then reoperations were benefited and units transfused were benefited by tranexamic acid. So this achieves in a very large randomized trial and other meta-analyses, a class one level of indication. Thank you very much. With that, we're gonna turn it over to Dr. McClure for our next takeaway. Thank you, Dr. Moffat Bruce. Um, for takeaway two, we'd like to highlight uh, for the audience, in patients undergoing cardiac surgery, a restrictive perioperative allogenic red blood cell transfusion strategy is recommended in preference to a liberal transfusion strategy for perioperative blood conservation, as it reduces both transfusion rate and units of allogenic red blood cells without increased risk for mortality or morbidity. And this is a class one uh, recommendation with again, level A evidence. So there are competing risk dilemma to the perioperative management of anemia in cardiac surgery patients. 
We need to find the balance between potential deleterious effects of anemia-induced tissue hypoxemia to the patient relative to the potential inherent deleterious risk of allergenic red blood cell transfusions to treat that anemia. And trying to find out what level of anemia is safe and what is a clinically relevant transfusion trigger. Now to try and identify a specific hemoglobin level at which point to transfuse the entire population is ill-advised because we have to recognize that each patient has their own clinical profile and it would be wrong to have a specific time point for everybody. But having said that, if we look, if we look at the data since 2011, we have accrued substantial data that has um, identified at least safely, if we look at red blood transfusion strategy with respect to liberal relative to restrictive, that we confidently can say that a restrictive strategy is at least as safe as the liberal strategy. There have been several randomized control trials involving upwards of 8,000 patients and accumulating patients from across four countries that confirm this. If you look at all of the randomized control trials, uh, they had slightly different designs, but the restrictive triggers were between seven and eight grams per deciliter, and the liberal triggers were between eight and 10 grams per deciliter. When you look at the final outcomes, as you would expect, those in the restrictive arm had more anemia, and those in the liberal arm had more transfusions. But for their primary composite outcomes, essentially there was no differences across uh, the two arms. Without diving too deep into the data, I would like to highlight two randomized control trials that make up the, the majority of these patients. There's the TITER II trial that was published in the New England Journal in 2015, and the TRIX III trial, which was published in the New England Journal two years later in 2017. Important to note that the primary outcome of both of those studies was no difference in the restrictive and liberal arms but I'd like to go through these with respect to what we did with the meta-analysis thereafter. With the TITER II trial, they had 2,007 patients, and the primary outcome was severe sepsis, ischemic events, or renal failure, and there was no difference in the primary outcome. Similarly, in the TRIX III trial, the primary composite outcome was death, stroke, mild cardiac infarction, and dialysis, and there was no difference at 28 days, and that held true out to six months. However, with the TITER II trial in 2015, they did find a 1.6% mortality in favor of the liberal arm in the secondary outcomes. The mortality for the, um, the restrictor group was 4.2%, and in the liberal group was 2.6%, and this was statistically significant at a p-value of 0.045. It was a secondary outcome, so hypothesis generating, but it was there. This is in stark contrast to the more robust uh, study, the TRIX-3 trial, two years later that had 5,000 patients. It's also in contrast to the other RCTs that were done throughout this time interval. So for something like that, we are best to look at meta-analyses to either confirm or refute the equivalence of these two strategies. And in the interim, there have been three meta-analyses that have looked at this. All three meta-analyses essentially came to the same conclusion, 
that first there was a 30% reduction in red blood cell transfusion with a restri restrictive approach, which you would anticipate, which equates to about 1.5 liter risk more, 1.5 times more risk of a transfusion in the liberal arm. And most importantly, they also found that there was no difference in stroke, myocardial infarction, reoperation, which was found in the randomized control trials. But more specifically, there was no difference in mortality, which helps answers the difference between those two randomized control trials. They also had a very low level of heterogeneity to further validate um, the meta-analyses. So with that, if we go to the final slide, on this particular topic, we can say overall best evidence from the multiple randomized control trials and systematic reviews and meta-analyses clearly establishes that the use of restrictive red blood cell transfusion strategies reduces both the probability and the amount of red blood cell transfusion without increasing the risk of mortality or major morbidity in patients undergoing cardiac surgery. Thank you very much, Dr. McClure. I'm going to turn it back to Dr. Shore Lesserson to give us uh, takeaway number three. Thanks very much. Um, there's a few, few points that go along with key takeaway number three. Goal-directed transfusion algorithms, which incorporate point-of-care testing, such as with viscoelastic devices, are recommended to reduce periprocedural bleeding and transfusion in cardiac surgical patients. This is again a class one recommendation with level of evidence B from randomized trials. Um, note that this talks about such as viscoelastic testing. Uh, this is not a requirement or a mandate to have viscoelastic testing, but evidence at the point of care is critical in cardiac surgical bleeding so that we have a timely analysis of those reasons why our patients are bleeding. And so viscoelastic testing happens to be the most well-studied and published in the literature. And if, uh, if available, it, it is recommended as part of your point of care transfusion algorithm. Now, in the interest of time, I will just briefly show some images. These are three of probably the most well-known viscoelastic tests. On the left is the TEG or the thromboelastogram. In the center is the ROTEM or the rotational thrombolastography. And on the right is the Quantra, which is a novel viscoelastic test that uses sonoreology in a similar fashion to what the newer TEG device is using. I think we're, some of us are pretty familiar with the tracings that are generated from these instruments, notably the TEG and the ROTEM, they have a characteristic signature tracing. The Quantra is somewhat different in that its output is a, a dial where a green bar indicates the normal range. So it's a very easy on the eyes and very easy to figure out if your patient is in that normal range. Now these devices can be used in any of a number of algorithms and there's no one magic bullet for any transfusion algorithm. And suffice it to say on the next slide, we have demonstrated a few of the um, data points that allow us to evaluate these instruments. This is a meta-analysis that was published in 2015. There are many meta-analyses looking at viscoelastic testing. 
all of them find in favor of viscoelastic testing relative to normal laboratory testing. And you can see the diamond um, at the bottom summary of all of these slides. And these, these studies are both randomized and observational, uh, but meta-analyses that include only randomized trials equally show the benefit of viscoelastic testing. So you'll see that the diamond falls to the left of the unity line, and this is a study of bleeding. So this finds that these studies found in favor of reduced bleeding when viscoelastic testing in point-of-care algorithm was compared with standard laboratory testing. And similarly, we see on the next slide that when you look at transfusion requirements, that the use of point-of-care viscoelastic testing also favored the transfusion burden relative to those patients who were managed with standard laboratory testing. Now you might ask, well, what is an algorithm that I should use? And it really is not so important what algorithm you use, but that we use one. And that is why so many of these different studies that utilize different platforms and even different instruments uh, were able to achieve benefit. So on the next slide, you'll see that there are a number of algorithms out there. And this slide is actually not meant to be read. If you'd like some of these algorithms, we can have them emailed to you after the webinar. But this algorithm on the top left is an algorithm that was published uh, in, from Mount Sinai Hospital. The algorithm on the top right is one that we currently use at Northwell Health. The one on the bottom left is used at Harefield Hospital, um, used by Dave Royston and his colleagues. And these three are TEG algorithms. And the one in the bottom right is a ROTEM algorithm that has been published by Dr. Karkuti out of Toronto um, all indicating the ability to reduce transfusions in cardiac surgical patients. And the next slide shows us that the, you can have an algorithm design with the Quantra. So this algorithm shown on the left is out of the University of Florida, provided to us courtesy of Dr. Bruce Spies, who has this under review now for publication. And on the right, we have Dr. Tibby's algorithm at Yavapai Medical Center, um, where he is also using the Quantra device in his transfusion algorithm. Again, if you would like to see these algorithms clearly um, or would like the papers, uh, please email STS and we will be able to provide them for you. Now, this is another takeaway that relates to testing. So I will review it. It reads prophylactic use of plasma in cardiac operations in the absence of coagulopathy is not indicated, does not reduce blood loss and exposes patients to unnecessary risks and complications of allogeneic blood component transfusion. This is a class three indication, which indicates there could be harm if this is practiced. The reason why this is an important takeaway is because all of these algorithms that I have shown are start with the evidence of microvascular bleeding. So we don't proceed through a transfusion algorithm if the patient is not bleeding. So that is a given. The patient should be bleeding and should have some laboratory evidence of coagulopathy. And then and only then would it be appropriate to transfuse plasma. So it is not useful as a prophylactic agent and shouldn't be used unless the patient is bleeding and demonstrates laboratory evidence of a coagulopathy based on plasmatic factors. This is another key takeaway that's based on point of care testing. 
In order to reduce bleeding in patients requiring elective cardiac surgery, patients taking ticagrelor should stop their drug for a minimum of three days, clopidogrel for five days, and prazogrel for seven days. This is a class one recommendation with a level of evidence B from mostly non-randomized studies. This speaks to the cessation of antiplatelet therapy. Now we all have had our experiences with the excessive bleeding that occurs when patients who are on antiplatelet therapy have cardiac surgery and cardiopulmonary bypass. And the reason for these elective cessation periods are because it is shown that if you wait a period of time for platelet function to return toward normal, that bleeding is reduced in these patients. And this of course applies only to elective surgery where you have the luxury of, of time to stop antiplatelet therapy. One study that I think highlights this concept very nicely is the Target Cabbage trial published by Mala and colleagues. And what these investigators did is they studied the TEG platelet mapping assay. Now, for, for those of us not familiar with what that is, I will quickly summarize to say that the MAADP is a measure of the responsiveness to Plavix. So if the MAADP is high, the patient has very normal or responsive to ADP platelet function. And if the MAADP is very low, the platelets are inhibited and are affected by the Plavix or clopidogrel. So what these investigators did was they stopped the clopidogrel and they measured the MAADP. And if the MAADP was very high, they proceeded with surgery right away, normal platelet function. If it was in an intermediate range, they waited three to five days and then performed cardiac surgery. And if it was very low, the platelet function was inhibited, they waited five days and then performed the cardiac surgery. And they measured the MAADP and demonstrated that it indeed did recover on the day of surgery. And you see on the next slide, which um, is just their chest tube outputs. We do have the data that the MAADP did recover after a number of days of waiting, but this slide is their chest tube outputs. And the three bars on the left are the clopidogrel treated patients who either waited five days, three to five days, or one day. And the group on the right, the open bar is clopidogrel naive group. So even the uh, patients who were on clopidogrel achieved chest tube drainages that were similar and statistically not different to a clopidogrel naive group. So this is uh, speaks in favor of point of care testing of platelet function and a period of cessation in order to safely perform elective cardiac surgery without excessive bleeding. Thank you very much. I'm now gonna turn it over to Dr. Tibby, who's gonna give us our next two takeaways. Thank you, Dr. Moffitt, Bruce. So the next two takeaways are actually extremely basic takeaways. The first one being that reduced priming volume in the cardiopulmonary bypass circuit reduces hemodilution and is indicated for blood conservation. This is once again, a class one level uh, B dash NR recommendation. There are two major studies on the next slide that are extremely large studies, one of 47,000 patients, another one of 21,000 patients. And they both show that the ratio of prime volume to estimated blood volume, the higher the ratio, 
it is an extremely strong dependent predictor of requiring blood transfusions. So this is a simple, very basic uh, recommendation. The next recommendation, which is our key takeaway number seven, and believe it or not, we did not even address this particular um, guideline within the 2021 uh, guideline update. It is a holdover of the 2011, but we felt that it was important enough to put this again as a key takeaway. And that is the routine use of red cell salvage using centrifugation is helpful for blood conservation and cardiac operations using cardiopulmonary bypass. The reason that we included this, and once again, it's class one level A as it has been for the last dozen years, is that we are understanding that there, there is still some reticence in, in some areas to use cell salvage. And it is a very key part of decreasing the anemia that can be seen post cardiopulmonary bypass. Thank you very much. Okay, over to you, Dr. McClure, for takeaway number eight, please. Excellent, thank you, Dr. Moffat-Bruce. Uh, we would, with takeaway eight, like to remind the audience that allergenic red blood cell transfusion is unlikely to improve oxygen transport when the hemoglobin concentration is greater than 10 grams per deciliter and is not recommended. And this is a class three recommendation showing no benefit with level B, R randomized uh, evidence. And we, yeah. And the reason I say remind is because this is an important recommendation that holds over from the 2011 guidelines. And in fact, if you go back, it's even uh, written into the 2007 guidelines. Uh, but we bring it forward today because it is a pillar of uh, patient blood management, and we feel that it, it should be etched uh, in the back of your mind. So historically, there was the golden 1030 rule, and this rule has been unproven historical and empirical practice. It was originally stated that you should transfuse red blood cells to maintain a hemoglobin concentration of 10 grams per deciliter and a hematocrit above 30%, regardless of the patient's symptoms. And this originally was written based on clinical observation and animal studies as far back as 1942, looking at how to optimize patients in the perioperative period. And there were successive tenets of which one of them was oxygen transport. And the rationale at the time was based on physiological evidence that cardiac output increases when the hemoglobin falls below 10 grams per deciliter. And in the face of those that were at the high, highest risk, often those with cardiac disease, the ability to increase cardiac output might be compromised. And so to re reduce the strain of the heart or to help um, an impaired heart, hemoglobin levels were historically kept higher to improve oxygen delivery. And although Theoretically, it makes sense. Uh, there were some compensatory abilities by the body um, that this didn't fully add up. And the 1030 rule has not proven to be beneficial practice strategy and is not supported by the available evidence. Um, this was 
carried forth almost as dogma into the 80s. And then the NIH had a consensus in 1988, followed by another task force by the American Society of Anesthesiologists in 1994. And then it found its way into our guidelines in 2007 and has um, stayed there since. We can go to the next slide. Um, and with respect to it not panning out, um, in contradistinction, there are voluminous clinical and physiological data within the medical literature to support the premise that patients can indeed tolerate hemoglobin levels that are less than 10 grams per deciliter or hematocrit of less than 30% without adverse events in the perioperative period. We first basically recognized this in the Jehovah Witness or faith-based um, cohorts that had a refusal outright of blood transfusion. Um, when set with an inability to transfuse patients, they did find large series of patients that had hemoglobins below this threshold. And indeed the adverse outcomes were not there. And this followed up forward um, in randomized trials, more in initially in the intensive care units, but in, in other areas as well, where not only was there no difference, but in fact, if you go back to the original TRICS trial from 1999, again, we're going back a ways, but they certainly found no benefit and possibly uh, even harm in some set, subsets of patients. So taking all of that together, um, this is a tried and true recommendation that we think everybody should be aware of. The best available evidence does continue to suggest that we should not transfuse if the hemoglobin is greater than 10 grams per deciliter because it does not improve oxygen transport at that level. Thank you very much. For the last two takeaways, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Ferreris, who's going to summarize the takeaways and then put a lot of this into context with some very elegant um, summaries of those two takeaways. Thank you, Dr. Ferreris. Thanks, Susan. Um, so it's, uh, first of all, I have to acknowledge that I'm old and I've been around for all three iterations of the guidelines and it's uh, extremely enjoyable to watch how this has evolved and, and the importance that it's maintained over many years. The two takeaways that I want to talk about are sort of summary takeaways. Um, and the first one is that, that the concept of patient blood management informs recommendations that have all been discussed here. And uh, the importance of an evidence-based, multimodal, multidisciplinary approach is not just to conserve blood resources, but importantly, it's to improve patient outcomes. And that really is the goal here. Um, we can sort of get a little bit focused on oh, we're not going to transfuse patients, <laughs> it might hurt them, but really what we're aiming for is a very high level of uh, patient safety and good outcomes. Um, so there are four, at least four components, uh, major components of patient blood management. Uh, first of all is managing anemia and certainly preoperative interventions that can address anemia are indicated. Furthermore, uh, intraoperatively and preoperatively, coagulation has to be optimized. And there are a number of steps that, that have been discussed that can do this. And then um, 
an interdisciplinary approach is mandatory. And, and when you think about interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary um, we're really talking about the perfusionists, the anesthesiologists, the intensivists, and the surgeons. And, and all of those uh, individuals have, a, have an option and a, uh, a chance to impact on patient blood management. And importantly, this is a patient-centered decision-making process. And the decision-making becomes a problem when Jehovah's Witnesses and patients who are afraid of transfusion. And, and there's a whole, number, a whole list of things that may impact patients' consent to have uh, both an operation and to have transfusion. So all of these things are important. And so um, slide is more or less a summary. Uh, it emphasizes uh, all of the components that we talked about today are a multidisciplinary approach. And we want to emphasize that that is a proven benefit for conserving blood resources and most importantly in optimizing outcomes. There is well-established evidence base for blood conservation. It has proven efficacy. It's especially helpful in high-risk patients. There is a very strong implication that bleeding and transfusion are modifiable risks. Each single component of the things that have been talked about today are, have limited or obscure impact if used alone, but the optimal outcome results from the summation of multiple steps and interventions, not just a few favorites. And it focuses really on patient-centered interventions. Thank you very much. And thank you to all of the uh, authors who presented these takeaways. We'd like to transition now, just before we open it up for questions, to two clinical scenarios to maybe focus and highlight some of the takeaways in a clinical uh, scenario and, and event. So with that said, the first clinical scenario um, is that of a 72-year-old gentleman with a history of previous cabbage surgery 10 years before, but now has recurrent angina. The repeat cardiac cath reveals a 99% occlusion of all of his four saphenous vein grafts. His LV function is normal. After an unsuccessful attempt at stent placement, he is scheduled for a re-op cabbage. He's placed on infusion of heparin and an infusion of tyrofibin. He was given a single dose of repro during the catheterization procedure. He is scheduled for a repeat cabbage again. The medications include atenolol, plavix, and aspirin. Currently, his hemoglobin is 11. In preparation for surgery, the anesthesiologist informed him that during repeat open heart surgery, he may receive a blood transfusion. The patient refused to accept the possibility of receiving blood for fear of a bloodborne infection. Now he wishes to cancel the surgery. With that, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Shore Lesserson to maybe highlight takeaway uh, one and three. Uh, takeaway one being the use of synthetic antifibrinolytic agents, and three being goal-directed transfusion algorithms. Sure, absolutely. Thanks, Dr. Moffat Bruce. Um, I can even think of another takeaway we should discuss. Um, so clearly, this patient is um, on a lot of anticoagulants and antithrombotic agents. Um, and if he were to go for surgery right away, he would clearly be a very large risk for, for hemorrhage post-cardiopulmonary bypass. 
So he's gotten a single dose of Reapro. He's on an infusion of Terofaban. I assume this is for the um, this the stent grafts that are occluded, and uh, he's also on heparin. So one of the um, key takeaways was the cessation of antiplatelet therapy, which this patient certainly could be um, a part of a three or a five day waiting period, depending on how inhibited his platelet function is. He's also on a daily dose of Plavix, I noticed. So it, it, would, be, it would behoove us to measure his, his platelet function at the point of care in response to ADP which would tell us about how inhibited his platelet function is, and then schedule his surgery based on the timing of that test measurement. Um, for his surgical procedure, I certainly would recommend our key takeaway number one, this patient would definitely benefit from synthetic antifibrinolytic use, uh, whatever is the flavor of the day at your particular institution, epsilon aminocoproic acid or tranexamic acid. And that would be something I would use at uh, a relatively generous dose and continue through to the end of the procedure. And depending on the hemostasis, even continue it into the post-operative period if necessary. Now, when he undergoes surgery, and, and I noticed that there were a few, um, there were a few questions in the chat about um, measuring viscoelastic testing on bypass and um, treating an abnormal result by giving some prophylactic plasma on bypass. It's not recommended to treat simply a, a laboratory test. And um, while measuring viscoelastic testing on bypass is useful because you know what you may anticipate if the patient is bleeding, but the actual cardiopulmonary bypass and extracorporeal circulation confers some degree of platelet dysfunction in and of itself that can reverse when the patient is restored to their normal circulation. So if viscoelastic testing is abnormal during bypass, that may give you some ideas what you want to order for transfusion, but I would not give those transfusions until protamine has reversed the heparin and we assess that the patient is in fact bleeding. And if we have the luxury of assessing viscoelastic testing after protamine, uh, because the bleeding's not excessive, then that's what is recommended. So viscoelastic testing, I would imagine we're gonna look carefully at platelet function and depending on the length of bypass, we'll look at fibrinogen function as well. Great, thank you very much. I do wanna turn it over to Dr. McClure to perhaps um, comment on two and uh, eight in that uh, they seem to be also pertinent in this particular scenario. Uh, Dr. McClure, do you mind expanding on those? Uh, certainly. Um, with respect to the first thing I would state is uh, with respect to the fear of bloodborne infections, that would have to be discussed with the patient. Um, the, the risk of a blood infection is infinitesimally small. Um, and if the patient would agree to proceed, um, with respect to takeaways two and eight, you know, despite being a higher risk patient, it would still stand that we would not uh, recommend transfusion uh, until a hemoglobin uh, of, se of seven grams per deciliter. And again, uh, at a hemoglobin level uh, above 10 grams, 
um, or we would not transfuse up to um, 10 grams. So um, despite the complexity of the scenario, those, those standard takeaways would hold true. Thank you very much. I think in the interest of time, we'll move on to the clinical scenario number two, if that's okay, Dr. Tibby, and then um, because we want to expand on that, and then we'll have some time for some questions as well. So clinical scenario number two is advancing is a patient who is 83 years old, who's had a surgical AVR eight years ago, who now presents with a STEMI. Uh, cardiac cath shows severe three-vessel coronary artery disease with a left main of 95% uh, stenosis. Current medication includes abixaban, yet she does not know why she's on it. The cardiologist calls and says that he placed uh, intraaortic balloon pump because she was having ongoing pain and that she needs urgent surgery. Her hematocrit is currently 32. As the cardiologist walks away, he states, oh, I forgot, by the way, she is a Jehovah Witness. With that, I'll turn it over to you, Dr. Tibby, to expand on some of the takeaways and maybe some additional uh, recommendations. Sure, so um, obviously this is a worst case scenario and I think for cardiac surgeons and everybody involved in cardiac surgery, it's not uncommon that the patient being a Jehovah Witness is an afterthought. Obviously this will require, we don't have a whole lot of time for preoperative preparation because she is relatively uh, emer urgent, if not emergent, and will need to be done right away. Certainly, a, she's on a pixaban, and we will not have time for reversal or for, uh, for waiting a period of time. So we will have to treat her with a reversal agent for emergency surgery. The new guidelines has an entire section on conversing with no blood patients and uh, going over blood consents with those patients and also has a table of what, um, what uh, is usually acceptable or not acceptable, but nevertheless does require a significant amount of con conversing with the patient on what they are willing to accept or not accept. So we take this patient to surgery and obviously intraoperative strategies, you know, are extremely important. And not only are class one uh, definitively uh, needed, but also there should be some consideration to other class recommendations, 2A and 2B, uh, depending on a particular situation. We've already talked about um, reduced priming volume and uh, red cell salvage. Uh, acute, uh, retrograde autologous priming is also a class one um, guideline. Uh, the use of antifibrinolytic agents as Dr. Shore Lesserson referred to. Viscoelastic testing being a class one, nevertheless, you're somewhat limited by what you can do with your results, but it may offer some additional help in getting these uh, patients uh, through surgery. So using all of your armamentarium as best as you can in these very, very difficult situations should 
reduce blood loss to a minimum. But as we all know, as surgeons or anybody who's stepped into the operating room, meticulous hemostasis is obviously the key uh, to getting this patient through with a relatively low morbidity and mortality, making sure that the patient is absolutely dry before you take them back to the intensive care unit because you have no safety net. The next slide discusses what we refer to as, uh, next slide, please, the joys of <laughs> Thank you for your patience. conferences. <laughs> so MIECC refers to minimally invasive extracorporeal circulation, which is basically just a com combination of strategies amongst the surgeons, the anesthesiologists, and the perfusionists in utilizing the techniques and technology that we have available to us intraoperatively to achieve optimal patient blood management in cardiac surgery. So that is a very important part of this whole intraoperative armamentarium, putting it all together uh, to use it in a coordinated fashion. Great, thank you so much. And thank you to uh, all of the authors I think what we'll do now is turn uh, open it up for some of these questions. And I thank all the authors who have been putting answers in uh, the Q&A as we go. Um, maybe we'll start with Dr. Shore Lesserson um, answering uh, Dr. Aurora's question relative to takeaway um, number five. And I know Dr. Ferraris is also writing some responses as well, but I'm wondering if we can open that uh, question up for conversation first. Linda, do you wanna go ahead? Sure. Yes. Um, so the the comment is, was there any discussion within the writing committee of providing specific recommendations of circumstances where antiplatelet drugs should be continued or may be continued? Quote, um, guidelines in 2018 say antiplatelet therapy management in the perioperative period should be based on a balanced assessment of the risks of coronary thrombotic complications versus the risk of perioperative bleeding in discussion with the surgeon, interventional cardiologist, attending physician, et cetera. Um, you know, this, this is a recommendation that really wasn't made for cardiac surgical patients. It was made for surgery. And so the cardiac surgical patient has to be taken into consideration that they are going to be heparinized they are going to be revascularized. And clearly there is always gonna be a discussion with the cardiac surgeon, the cardiologist and the anesthesiologist about whether or not the patient should wait five days, three days or go right away. And that's, that's part of the discussion and that's part of the reason to test the ADP efficacy of the drugs. Um, so I think those guidelines are very important for patients who have reasons to be on dual antiplatelet therapy and need non-cardiac surgery. But once you're on dual antiplatelet therapy for coronary reasons, I think it is then a different risk benefit analysis that needs to be weighed at the bedside for the cardiac surgical patient. Great, thank you very much. And while it's your uh, front and center, I'm gonna have you ask, answer a couple more questions if you don't mind. Um, Ryan writes, um, is there any risk of administering prophylactic antifibrinolytics for patients that have preoperative elevated fibrinogen levels? And if so, is there a cutoff value? Oh, that's, that's a great question. And, you know, we are 
we are looking at this right now with COVID disease because they have such elevated fibrinogens and, and viscoelastic testing indicating that they have high fibrinogen. And we all know that they have incredible thrombotic risk. Um, fibrinogen level alone, there's no data to suggest that any high level of fibrinogen or any number that can be quoted would be a risk or a contraindication to antifibrinolytic therapy. What you wanna make sure is that the patient doesn't have a pre-existing hypercoagulable disorder that affects the fibrinolysis pathway. So there are some disorders that affect the fibrinolysis pathway, which means that that pathway is not available to intervene in a coagulation um, event when an antifibrinolytic is given. So you've basically shut down fibrinolysis and they have an inherited perhaps um, fibrinolytic disorder. So those patients would include some who have PI at plasminogen activator inhibitor abnormalities, those that have factor V Leiden abnormalities are, are unable to mount a normal fibrinolytic response. But the mere presence of high fibrinogen alone, I don't believe has been demonstrated in any paper to be a, a risk or a contraindication. Excellent, thank you very, very much. Maybe I'll turn a question over to Dr. McClure. Um, and there are several here that I think it may be applicable to but relative to recommendation one, but also the other recommendations, is this for on and off pump surgery or do we need to think a little bit differently with these different uh, techniques? Sorry, Dr. Moffat Bruce, I'm trying to listen and, and type. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I You're think do these parameters hold for both uh, on pump and, and off pump? So the short answer would be that it does hold true. Now I will, um, to maintain those takeaways uh, regardless, but I will, I will use a caveat to that. Now the, the trials had different designs um, with, I'm talking about uh, takeaway two now with respect to um, restriction versus liberal. I can talk about the takeaway eight in a second. So with re respect to takeaway two, the, the trial designs were slightly different and they were all with on-pump patients. Uh, some had transfusions during the OR, some had them during the OR in the ICU, and some had them during the OR, ICU, and up on the ward. Um, if you look at the patients that were just looked at up on the ward, um, there was no difference. If you looked at the patients in the OR, the, the consensus was whether they could tolerate a, a lower a lower transfusion and, and they could. So I don't think being an on-pump would definitively change that management. But to the point of, of the person asking the question, the, the data was not derived with patients with on-pump, off-pump surgery. Great, thank you very much. And whilst we're on that uh, topic, actually, Dr. McClure, I'm wondering if you could answer the question uh, relative to scenario number one, could that patient have a, a pump, uh, have a redo cabbage off pump with perhaps limiting grafts to left side or critical occlusion? What do you think? Could that redo patient have, have a, an off pump? As an off pump, could he? Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. So if we if we want to talk about if we want to talk about um, you know if we want to talk about blood conservation. 
and and cervical management. I mean, there's there's countless data to suggest that off pump surgery is a way of reducing blood loss. That that is that is well teased out. The question with off pump surgery is there's also data to suggest that outcomes in those that don't use it a lot, you can have impediment to graft graft patency and so forth. So if you're purely talking about blood conservation, off-pump surgery is a good option, but off-pump surgery and blood conservation should not be your primary reason for using that approach. So for example, myself, I'm not an off-pump surgeon. So in my efforts to save blood, in that case, I would not do off-pump surgery. But if you're an off-pump surgeon, you do it all the time, that's a, a great alternative to, to prevent blood transfusion. Great. Thank you so much. Um, I'm just trying to go between the chat and the Q&A. I see one other question there, um, Scott. Um, do restrictive transfusion strategies increase the risk of AKI in patients? No, is going to be my, my short answer. Based on the meta-analyses, there has been no definitive uh, data to suggest. Now, the question might be coming maybe you're going to bring up a, a small subset study uh, and, and grill me on it, but the broader meta-analysis would say no. Great. Thank you so much. Um, I'm wondering, uh, Dr. Tibby, if you could comment on the question. Um, there's one here, uh, comment on the use of ultrafiltration during pump runs and the use of the hemobag to concentrate pump blood post uh, pump run. Can you comment on that? Well, sure. Um, the recommendations for cell saver is uh, level one. Uh, modified ultrafiltration or ultrafiltration of the blood uh, is not necessarily does not necessarily have the evidence. But I agree that a lot of uh, cell salvage uh, re returns some low uh, low coagulative uh, blood to the patient. Um, I routinely use modified ultrafiltration on cell salvage, but it was not, uh, did not have the, um, the, uh, research available to definitively rec uh, recognize that as a recommendation. Great. Thank you very much. I'm just trying to review the questions that don't have answered to them, uh, Thus far, maybe Dr. Tibby will just answer this other question that just showed up. Is cell sal salvage useful during post-operative periods? So um, it can be. Uh, certainly it is not indicated. Uh, it's class three to reinfuse uh, blood uh, that, is, um, that is accumulated post-surgery. Nevertheless, if you are going to, then you do have to uh, put wash it, basically. Uh, so the, the, the crux, though, is to deliver a patient to the intensive care unit that does not have uh, significant bleeding. One of the things that I think we all uh, would agree upon, that it is better to return a patient to the operating room in, unless you have a coagulopathy, unless you can prove a coagulopathy, it's better to return to a patient to the operating room to prevent significant bleeding rather than reinfuse 
uh, keep reinfusing large amounts of even cell salvage blood. That's great. Thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Shorlethersen, I have a question here. What is the role of vasoelastic testing with GP2B3A inhibitors? Yes, thanks. I saw that question. Um, the effect of GP2B3A inhibitors can be missed with the standard viscoelastic testing. Um, that is why a separate test that looks at the 2B3A receptor, which can also be measured studying the ADP receptor, um, are necessary. So if you did a straightforward TEG or ROTEM, you could miss a low-level 2B3A defect. Um, and so that's why the platelet mapping, which is available on the TEG device, or a P2Y12 assay on the Verify Now device, or even others like the multi-plate for those um, that can use multi-plate mostly in Europe and, and Australia. And um, there are other devices, but you need to actually use a test that interrogates either the ADP receptor or the P2Y12 um, receptor or the 2B3A receptor specifically. Um, it can be missed with standard viscoelastic tests. Uh, that's great. Thank you so much. I see another question here that these questions are jumping around a little bit. Um, there, what about uh, Berlinta reversal using novel drug, drugs? Uh, yes, uh, Berlinta reversal is, I would say, probably extremely expensive. Um, it is probably not necessary for a cardiac surgical patient, I would say in non-cardiac surgery, it is something to be considered if there's a specific antidote for Berlinta as there is. Um, but in cardiac surgery, I, I don't think there is enough data. There certainly were not enough data for us to make a recommendation that the specific antidote to any of these agents should be used prior to cardiac surgery. It all depends on the patient's acuity um, and whether or not a waiting period can be achieved. And then the decision would be made based on each individual patient situation. Excellent, thank you. And here's another question in the chat. Is there um, a specific duration for antifibrinolytics to continue them into the post-operative period? So yes, um, and this is not based on literature. Um, this is this is my practice. This is some others practice that if a patient is excessively oozy and still bleeding at the end of a procedure, that the antifibrinolytics that are almost always being given during a surgical procedure can be continued into the post-operative period. And there's no set period of time. Um, usually it's during the period that the testing is being administered and the blood products are being ordered, or perhaps the prothrombin complex concentrates are being given because in ordinarily what will happen is the viscoelastic testing will start to show fibrinolysis if the antifibrinolytics have been stopped. So if you have a bleeding patient and you're managing that with transfusion therapy, uh, it's not unreasonable to keep the, the uh, antifibrinolytic going until the transfusion therapy is able to be slowed or stopped. Excellent, thank you very much. Um, I see, um, goodness, things are moving around one more time. I'm just checking these questions. Oh, and thank you for everybody for answering them uh, in, in sequence. 
I think we're almost there relative to the questions. Um, and of course, these algorithms, again, will be available. Uh, the STS can help us uh, distribute those. Um, and hereafter, um, um, Scott will describe a little bit of when this uh, recording will be available and all the materials discussed herein. And of course, the references are within the, the guideline paper itself. Um, I think with that, I would uh, very much like to thank um, everyone that's participated this evening. I'm truly a panel of experts that helped to put these guidelines together, um, building on great guidelines, like Dr. Pereira said, that have been going on many iterations and we learn something every time we review them. I think it's fair to say too that our colleagues tonight have shared with us that patient blood management really is, um, is truly a multidisciplinary, multimodal um, approach to the care of patients and that with these guidelines and in consultation with all stakeholders, we can improve the outcomes of our patients. Um, with that, I wanna thank, sincerely thank, uh, Dr. Shore Lesserson, Dr. McClure, Dr. Ferraris and Dr. Tibby and the SDS staff for putting this together this evening. Uh, I think it's been most informative and thank you to the, those that attended and all your excellent questions. With that, I will turn it back over to the STS staff just for a few details. Thank you, Dr. Moffat-Bruce. And thank you to all our panelists today for your participation and insight. We invite you to become a member of STS if you're not one already. You'll enjoy a variety of discounts, benefits and opportunities to help you grow professionally. Learn more at sts.org slash membership. The STS Cardiothoracic Surgery eBook is now available for purchase. Online or mobile, it is the most complete and authoritative resource for CT surgical information in the world. The latest update of the eBook includes 25 new chapters in the adult and pediatric cardiac surgery volume. Learn more and subscribe at sts.org slash eBook. The STS annual meeting is the preeminent event in cardiothoracic surgery, offering more translational science and hands-on activities than any other educational event of its kind. Plan to join thousands of CT surgery colleagues in Miami Beach, Florida on January 29th through the 31st. Registration will open next month. Save the date for the next event in the STS webinar series. The program will address the changing landscape of pediatric and congenital heart surgery education. Join us on Thursday, October 21st. Thank you for attending and good night.